going to go into 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to camp out at verse 3 most of the time. Easter is a, a really foundational celebration to Christianity, and if, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus did not uh, resurrect from the dead, there, there is no Christianity. So if you have a problem with Christians and you just wish that they would go away, or you have some friends or family that would just wish that you'd go away, or or Christianity would just kind of go away. Sometimes I can't blame them for that because, you know, sometimes we as Christians, we've done some pretty stupid things. But if that were the case, all they would have to do is prove the resurrection false. That's the one thing that they would have to prove false and everything else crumbles. And so just, you can give them that as fodder. Just like, can you prove the resurrection false for me? And then everything kind of just goes by the wayside. But if a resurrected Christ is true, if a resurrected Christ is true, even if his followers have misrepresented him, he's still God, even if we've messed up. So what we have in the resurrection is one of these primary, fundamental, basic tenets of Christianity. And it was God's design to provide this new life for those who can't earn it, who don't deserve it. And Peter writes to us in this letter about God's amazing plan and design of redemption. Let me pray for us. God, we celebrate your resurrection. We thank you that you've just designed this beautiful plan as to atone for our sins, for the things that uh, we have done before a holy God. And no matter how small we view those sins or how you know, minuscule we, we view them, they are still sin before a holy God. Yet you, God, reached down and made a plan to redeem that. And we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that even in my insufficiency and inefficiency to uh, share what Easter is about, I pray that you through your Holy Spirit would be able to speak to everyone's heart here. In Jesus' name, amen. Now before we get any further, I'd like to share a little bit more about Peter, who, who wrote this letter. Now who was Peter? Who's this guy Peter? Peter was a fisherman the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is where he called home. If you go to a city called Capernaum, even now they, the Catholic Church has built this UFO type of structure over Peter's house. And you cannot even go into that place. You can go into Capernaum, but you can't go into that little museum type thing unless you're Catholic. So um, I've thought about lying. Yeah, I'm Catholic. It's just so I could go to this thing, but I'm, I'm afraid of God. So I haven't lied and to do that. So all I can do is just kind of observe from the top and watch other people, Catholics, go in and be envious. But that's where his, his home is. It's right, right in this town called Capernaum. And Peter, he does some good things and he does some not so good things, right? Like he can walk on water, but then his faith kind of falters and then he sinks. And he, he just struggles with a bunch of stuff all the time. He has foot and mouth disease. Peter has foot and mouth disease. He says these things often before he thinks and then, you know, he's... His foot's in his mouth. So, so he'll confess something amazing like, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And Jesus will be like, right on, Pete. Good job, Petey. And then he'll be like, yeah, but you can't die on the cross. And he, 
then Jesus would be like, get behind me, Satan. Like, this is like right after, so, because he has these things on, uh, of man rather than God. So he always has these, like, this juggling act going on, right? It, all, by the way, Peter's a ninja. Peter is a ninja. He, he hacks off Malchus's ear, right? The high priest, the servant of the high priest, he hacks off his ear. Because he wants to stand up for Jesus. He wants to be the man. He was like, eh, I'm going to stand up for Jesus. Now, to hack off somebody's ear, he did not mean to do that. I don't know if you realize that. I think he's really trying to kill somebody. Right? He's, he's trying to kill somebody. He's just so bad at it. He just gets an ear. You have to be so skilled to just get an ear. Can you imagine? Like, if it's coming down this way, you're going to catch somebody on their trapezius or their collarbone or something, right? And if you're kind of coming up this way, you're going to get them in the head. How does he just get an ear? It's just by accident. He just happens to just get it by accident. But he takes off because he gets kind of freaked out because things aren't kind of going as planned. Jesus heals Malchus's ear rather than saying like, yeah, let's go get him, guys. And so so he, he gets kind of freaked out. He takes off. And then he kind of follows Jesus and he, he goes to Caiaphas' house and he plants at the courtyard there. And he's just hanging out at the courtyard. Then this junior high girl comes along and he says like, you sound like a hick. You follow Jesus? And he's like, no, I don't follow Jesus. I don't even know who the guy is, right? And then he, he, she does it again. You follow Jesus. Your, your hick accent gives it away. And, he's, and then he goes all potty mouth, right? He's like, oh, blah, 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 bleep, 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 all this stuff. And then the rooster crows. He's just a really conflicted guy. He's just like good things, bad things, good things, bad things. All this stuff is going on, all this stuff going on with him. He first, he, he cuts off Malchus's ear. I'm going to stand up for Jesus. And, he, and then he can't. And then he goes to the courtyard and, and then a junior high girl comes up and says like, hey, aren't you a follower? Your, your, your hick accent gives it away. And he can't, he, he fights it. So he's just a very conflicted guy. Now, after Jesus was crucified... Peter runs to the tomb to check it out for himself, to see if this is really true. What does Peter do after that? He goes home. Isn't that weird? He goes home. He doesn't go off and tell the other disciples and say, hey guys, what Jesus did is true. What he did was real. The Gospels tell us that he marveled, but why did he go home? Isn't that interesting? Maybe he went home rather than sharing with the disciples or sharing with the other followers because he is so ashamed. He is so full of shame that he, he, knew, the, he knew the truths, he knew the facts, but he couldn't kind of live through them. Maybe all these kind of conflicting things, whether he's sinking in the water when he was walking there, whether he was cutting Malchus's ear, uh, whether he was confessing God, and all these things that he was doing well, but then he was also not doing so well, all these things may be coming to him. And ultimately, he denied Jesus. He denied Jesus. And so he was just so filled with shame. He was so filled with guilt. And what does he go back to doing? He goes back to fishing. He goes back home, he goes back to fishing. But he went back to fishing for the wrong catch because, you know, he's supposed to be a fisher of men, not a fisher of fish. But he goes back to his day job, what he's comfortable with, what he knows best, what he doesn't really have to think about. And he goes back to his home. What happened? 
what happened? This is Peter who for three years of his life, Jesus invested into this guy's life. It was evident that Jesus was the Messiah to him. It was evident that he was the Savior of humankind for all of their sins. What happened to Peter? Because he is an eyewitness to Jesus' miracles. He is an eyewitness to Jesus' teachings. The very being of Jesus, the physical being of Jesus, he has touched What happened? He even saw Jesus in his glory, right? In the Mount of Transfiguration. We covered that last week. He saw that. And still, this is what's happening. What happened that Peter could still deny Jesus Christ after all of that? Some of you are really hard on yourselves, thinking like, oh, I'm such a terrible Christian. You know, no one's as bad as me. I suck as a Christian. Do you suck this bad? This is really bad. This is like Jesus right next to you, following for three years, sleeping, eating with him, all this stuff, and he still denies him. Are you really this bad, though? And it's not only Peter. All of them deserted him. All of them. What happened to these guys? I believe that what happened was their hope was gone. And I think Peter initially had the guts to fight when those soldiers came with their torches and their lanterns and and their weapons and all this stuff and they came and they wanted to fight because he thought for that moment, this is it. Jesus, we're going to take this by force. This is the moment that I've been waiting for. No more Mr. Nice Guy Jesus. Jesus, the one that we saw calm the storm. That guy, he's going he's gonna to bring his wrath. But then when Jesus told these guys, chill out, guys. Why are you doing this? And he puts the ear back on Malchus' head. I think they started to lose hope. I think they were like, uh-oh. We're going to die. All the things that he was saying, that's true. We are really going to suffer. We are really going to be rejected. We are really going to die. And they fled. And the way that Peter and the other disciples thought Jesus was going to win was probably he was going to overthrow the Roman government. There's this oppressive government. Jesus, you know, they, they've been oppressing us so long. Let's take them over and let's, let's, let's wipe all these Pharisees out too. Because, you know, that religious order there, it's not going as you, you were, as, like you were saying, God. That's not, that's not the way that's what. Wipe them all out. Wipe out the Roman government. You know, put us on your right-hand sides, right? You know, they were fighting who's the greatest and all this stuff. And, and so they thought that they knew Jesus. And they thought that they knew who they were following. But they really didn't understand. Even though it was told to them that the Messiah was to suffer, be rejected, and die. They didn't really quite get this. And even though they were told this, they didn't understand. So they took off when they came for Jesus. And when they took off and they, and they took Jesus and they started putting him in the trial, that hope is, is, is fizzling away. That hope is just going away. But then Peter is able to write this letter. First Peter. Have you guys ever read this letter? This is a guy who's totally transformed from the guy that couldn't stand up to a junior high girl. This is a totally different guy. Let's just read verse 3. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now since it's Easter, let's just focus on this for a moment. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now several weeks after Peter's hopeless episode and his denial and all this kind of stuff, right? Several weeks after. This is just several weeks after. Put your, not, not writing this letter. Put your mind frame several weeks later. What do we find Peter doing several weeks later from his hopelessness? It's found in Acts chapter 3. This is just several weeks after Jesus went through trial and crucifixion and all this stuff. We find Peter in the streets of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3 preaching a resurrected Jesus. This is just a few weeks after he couldn't with, you know, kind of go against a junior high girl. And then several weeks after, we find him preaching a risen Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem. This is what I find really fascinating too. If you go to Acts chapter 4, who is he talking to? He is talking to the high priest Caiaphas. The very guy who he was in his courtyard when he denied Jesus and the rooster crowed and the junior high girl, the junior high girl was Caiaphas' servant. He is talking to him face to face. Not afraid. Isn't, isn't that amazing? If you were to deny Jesus and his resurrection, how do you explain the transformation from this guy who cannot even stand up to a junior high girl to the guy who is right in Acts chapter 4 talking to the very high priest who was trying Jesus in, in, his, high, in his house? How is that explained? Now go back to chapter 3 in Acts. Peter was not preaching a dead Jesus. That's really clear. He's telling people about a living, resurrected Jesus. It's not like he's telling people like, you know that Jesus who died? But he left us like some really awesome teachings. So let's just focus on these teachings and commemorate the great rabbi and all these great teachings that he told us. He is not talking about that. He is talking about a risen, alive Lord. That is what he's talking about. And he says, yeah, hold on to the things that Jesus taught. Those are good things. But he's alive. It's not like commemorating the dead. He's still teaching us because he's alive. He's risen. Now, no one can deny Jesus. I, I mean, if you do seriously, you're foolish. You, you can't. I, I've been reading, because it's Easter, I've been reading different blogs and different things. And, and one of the things I read uh, this afternoon, actually, was Jesus is a myth. The guy that wrote that is, is dumb. I'm, I'm, how can he be a myth? Even non-Christians don't deny that Jesus walked the earth. Maybe, maybe they argue the teachings, or the, but to deny the actual person live, that's silly. That's so silly. He, he is factual. The, the Renaissance is based off of that guy. Right? The, the whole historical movement and that age is based off of... Are you saying that that did not exist? That's so silly. And so he's factual. He's a historical figure in human history. That is not debatable. That's dumb. There's no denying that. That's like denying some other person of history existed. Whoever that person is. Gandhi. Oh, Gandhi's a myth. Really? So India's a myth. It's not there. 
It's there, right? So it's not a myth. No one can deny the existence of a physical Jesus. That's silly. Even irreligious scholars confirm the existence of Jesus. They might debate what He taught. They might debate His claims and all that stuff. But the being Himself, Jesus the human, that is not debatable. That is asinine. The denial does not lie on whether Jesus existed. It lies on what He claimed. That's the debate. Jesus claimed to be God. Now that's where we debate. That's where we have our discussions. And he claimed he would rise from the dead. That's where we have a debate. That's where we have our discussions. Now, if he didn't do that, I just can't grasp how Peter goes through this transformation from scaredy cat Peter to proclaiming in the streets of Jerusalem. I can't grasp that with an argument of Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead. If he didn't, wouldn't he just stay a scaredy cat who's fishing and stay home? Why go back to the streets of Jerusalem after he took off? It just doesn't make any sense to me. The Bible actually tells us what happened. When Jesus was given this death sentence on the cross, Peter loses hope. He goes back to fishing. He goes back home. After Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus went to Peter while he was fishing, and they have some breakfast together. Gospel of John. And there Jesus kind of reminds him. Jesus gives him a pep talk. Jesus empowers him. Jesus reinserts hope in him. And Peter then is able to preach a living Savior, a risen Lord who died and rose again. He's able to preach this gospel and he's able to write this letter. It's all in the Gospel of John. And this letter that Peter wrote is directed to the followers of Jesus. It is not directed towards people who are not followers of Jesus. This is not a letter meant to convince you to be a follower of Jesus. This is written for a follower of Jesus. To live a life declaring Him as a risen Lord, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the opposition that you face. Now, Peter was writing to a people that... They were facing much greater persecution, much greater opposition than we are facing here in Oakland. It's much greater. The people he was writing to, this letter that he wrote to, they feared for their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They were fearful of that. And people who followed Jesus back then, back in this place, back in this time, they were outcast on several levels. Politically, socially, spiritually. These guys are outcasts. So Peter wrote them this letter to inform them of what is true about Christianity, to help them in this desperate time, to give them the hope, the hope that he lost when when they came for Jesus. And now he's trying to plant that hope that he received on that beach there when Jesus was kind of like serving up some breakfast. The hope that they have in Jesus and to share that. A hope that withstands the test of time. So Peter's writing this to share this and it's this living hope that we read about in first peter chapter 1 verse 3 this living hope is the paramount thing to the life of a follower of jesus now hope is essential to everyone you can't live without hope how do you live without hope see without hope things just start shutting down and have you ever noticed someone with an illness who has given up hope They've just, they've given up. 
they deteriorate more quickly than the person who kind of keeps that up, right? And, and they're also able to give something to people around them when they have hope. Even though they have a terminal illness, but if they have hope, they are still able to impart something rather than just kind of waiting to die. See, the hope enables us to fight and to persist. Now, have you ever noticed a spouse who has lost hope in their marriage? Have you ever noticed when a child loses hope in their parents? They're there physically, but something in them has turned off. The light switch is turned off inside of them. If you look into their eyes, something has turned off even though they're there physically. See, it's this hope that allows us to progress, to move forward. And when hope dies, we just live to endure another day. We live to tolerate another day, tolerate the person. We live to do the best that we can for as long as we can, and we live just to exist. We're there physically, but something's turned off inside. And it's like you're living to die. You're waiting to die. And just waiting for death rather than living for a victorious life or living a victorious life, a life empowered by God, a proactive life with God who is mighty to overcome the way that we feel, the way that we think about our lives even though things are pretty bad. It's not about God making things better. That's not what life is about. That's not what hope is about. Because he doesn't promise that. He doesn't promise that things are going to get better. But it's recognizing God in you and that regardless of the circumstances of your life, that God is in you. He's inside of you. And the hope isn't in the circumstances. The hope is in Jesus who is in you, who has redeemed your life. The hope is not in you. The hope is not in your circumstances or your situations. The hope is in Jesus. So it's not about God changing your circumstances. It's about God changing you. Now what hope is there in changing your financial situation if you haven't changed, if your character hasn't changed? Aren't you still going to blow that money regardless of how much uh, you have if your character within hasn't changed? Aren't you still going to blow it? What hope is there in changing the marital circumstances in your life if your character hasn't changed? I'm going to divorce that guy. He's such a jerk. And you move on and you get into another relationship. Aren't you going to be that same jerk to the other guy if nothing's changed within you? You're just going to carry from one relationship to another if nothing's changed. So the hope is not in changing your circumstances. Now notice with me in verse 3. According to His great mercy. His great mercy. The hope is in Jesus who is mighty and who does things beyond what we could ever imagine. And so Christian hope is a hope that is more than what is possible. When we think of hope, when we try to define hope, a non-Christian's hope lies in what is possible, right? Hoping, you know, to win the lottery, that the stock market changes, that the real estate market changes, they get a better job, they get into a good school, uh, whatever. Christian hope is deeper. Christian hope is deeper than those things, even though that those things aren't bad. I'm not saying they're bad things. I'm not even saying they're bad things to hope for. 
But Christian hope is deeper. How so? Christian hope entails a confident and joyful expectation in the fulfillment of God's promises. God's promises. Not our promises, not what we're hopeful for, what we're wishing for. It's hope that is grounded in reality, in God's promises, in the Word of God. If you want to find out what God's promises, you just read the Bible. They're all in there. It's not about well-wishing. It's based on reality, God's promises. Now, Christian hope is based on that verifiable reality. right? And, and that is what produces a present change in us. And a change that we can actively participate in where we can positively change our future. That we can engage in it now. So do you see the difference? You can hope in winning the lottery. You can even be an active participant in that, right? You can buy lottery tickets. But you can't guarantee the positive change. Even if you win, you can't guarantee a positive change. The majority of lottery winners lose it. Did you know that? If I won, it wouldn't happen to me. But they lose it. But first I have to start playing it. But anyway, that, I digress. Why do they lose it? Their character hasn't changed. The people that they are hasn't changed. They're bringing that same person who was broke before they bought the lottery ticket to the person who now has a lot of money. So they're going to blow that too. Nothing's changed. Just the circumstances. The same thing for you. If you're struggling with a sin or whatever, even if you conquer a sin, it's just going to move to another one if your character hasn't changed. You're just going to transplant it to something else. We've got to change our character. The Christian hope is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on us. It's dependent on God. It's not imagined. It's grounded on reality. You have the Word of God there for you. right? It's, it's not well-wishing. And so for that reality, yes, we can look to the Bible, but we can also look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus who defines for us what hope is. And because of Jesus, we can look to the past to anchor our hope. Now, it's not our past. We can look at the past to anchor our hope, right? The the, the historical past. The past that Jesus lived through. the, The stories that we're told. We can't look to ourselves to anchor that hope. If you do, you're going to be miserable. You can already look at it now like, oh, that's, that's crazy. You can't look at yourself, right? Think about all the dysfunction that you've experienced in your life and the abuse and just the junk that you've experienced in your life. And if you really depended on that stuff to determine your present hope and your future hope, wouldn't that be really discouraging? But when we look through the lens of Jesus and what He did in the past, and let that define our hope, what did Jesus do? He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if you are a Christian, and if you find yourself without hope, I pray that you are lovingly reminded of where your hope lies. Jesus has risen. That's what we're celebrating today. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's about Jesus. about being brought near by the blood of Christ. It's not about what you and I do. And many times people look at Christians and they're turned off because we often misrepresent Jesus. We do. And I actually know a lot of non-Christians who live a better Christian life than Christians. My mom is one of them. She's not a Christian, but she is one of the most generous people I know. She's more generous than most Christians. And so I I know a lot of non-Christians who live a better life than Christians do. So if that's the case, what good is it to live a life of faith as a Christian? If that were true. The good is that the grace of God is real. The good is that the mercy of God is real. That's the good. That it's independent of what we do, but it's the recognition of God's grace and God's mercy. Now, if we were dependent on ourselves to live a good life, what need is there for God's grace and God's mercy? Would we even need it? And if our lives were dependent on how good we are in order to be accepted by God, totally dependent on us, some of us would be at the end of the line. Wouldn't we? If it were totally dependent on us, we'd be like way back there. Take a, take a number, one million and one or whatever it is, right? We'd be way back there. But God's grace allows the chief sinner, which Paul even kind of describes himself, he's the sinner, chief, chief sinner, right? To, to come up to the front of the line despite of who they are, despite, of their, despite their past, despite their upbringing, despite all the abuses and the junk and all this other stuff that kind of created who they are today. And because of God's grace and God's mercy, you're ushered to the front of the line regardless of that junk in the past. That's beautiful. That's a loving God. Right? People wonder, like, how can God send people to hell? How can a loving God send people to hell? God's grace allows people to be pulled out of the pits of hell because everyone's actually sentenced to hell. We are all sinners. It's by God's grace and mercy that we are plucked out of the gates of hell. And then how loving would God be if God's acceptance was totally dependent on us? If it were totally dependent on us, and it wasn't because of God's grace, but it was because of the things that we did, how loving is that? He doesn't even have to participate. He's just an observer. And he's just watching what you do, and then you earn your way. How loving is that? That's not love. How loving is a parent if all I did was watch my kids, and dependent on what they did is how much I love them. Can you imagine? I mean, if you put it in that kind of perspective, doesn't that make me look like a terrible parent if that's how it is? If I don't love them unconditionally? It doesn't matter what they do. I love them. And they have choices and they have decisions to make and and things in their life. But I don't do it. One brings me cookies and one doesn't, so I don't like the one with cookies. Like, what kind of loving dad is that? Right? So, So... Some of you have had this experience. Some of you haven't. But 
But when a baby is born, the amount of love that you have for that baby is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. That baby has done nothing. It has done nothing except cry and make me pay a huge copay. That's the only thing that baby has done for me. Yet I'm, I'm ready to die for that kid. I'm ready to switch places. And, and, and when, when you know nurses and stuff, they tell me, oh, oh, bring that crash cart. Something's wrong here. I'm ready to negotiate with God. God, take me instead. I, you know, bring that baby out and take me instead. Right? And, and given all the junk that you've had to deal with in your life, all the unhealthy things in your upbringing, in your past, all the darkness, all the brokenness, aren't you glad that it's not up to you to determine how much God loves you? That's grace. That's merciful. It's all God's grace. And it's not because we're fortunate enough to, to have a good upbringing, a healthy family life, and, and not being raised in poverty. And, and let's even say that you had all the ideal things of life. Everything was perfect. Right? Everything was ideal. Everything turned out really great in your life. Everything was good. But is that really hopeful? Does that give you hope? If all the stuff was good in your life? That, that's not really hopeful. right? It, it's more like chance. That's not hope. You were lucky. You just got it by chance. So what hope does that really provide you if you got all that stuff? You just happen to get it. And what hope can you provide others? You can't provide that hope to others. Right? That, that everything is just dependent on chance? So the living hope we're given is not reliant on us. It's according to His mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's through what Jesus did. His death on Good Friday, His resurrection on Easter Sunday is what gives us hope, a living hope, because Jesus is alive. We're born again. We aren't the same people we once were, and yet some of us feel like we are. Don't we? We don't, we don't feel a change. We, we struggle with the same things. We think about the same things. We act the same way we did prior to knowing Jesus. Are you depending on yourself too much? Are you relying on yourself too much to bring about change in your life? Are you relying on yourself for hope that you can change something within your life? When you were born, not born again, when you were born, biologically, well, that kind of born, right? Was it shocking? None of us remembers. We don't remember this, right? We don't remember that day. But I, I've worked on an ambulance. I've worked in hospitals. I've observed the delivery of some relatives. I know some of you guys think that's sick. Like, oh, how would your aunt let you in? I was in the medical field, so you know, it, it worked out. My own children, all, this, all, all these kids, right? They were shocked. Unless they were really sick or they came out of stillbirth or something like that. But if they came out a healthy baby, they were shocked. They all came out looking like grumpy old men. And, and all babies look Asian to me when they come out. I don't know why, but they do. We come into light, even if it's dimmer light, like 
Tom Cruise wants for his kids or something like that. But you still come out to a brighter light than what you were in, right? You, you, it was, it's still brighter, even if it's candle light, whatever. So you come out and people are touching you. People don't touch you in that womb. I mean, they touch you from the outside, but they don't touch you directly. But now you have people touching you directly. Ew. Right? And, and, and then noises that you've never heard before. And different temperature and just different feeling and air and all this kind of stuff. This is the picture that Peter is drawing for us in being born again. Right, that, that you're, you come out into this new world, it's, it's totally different, it's totally transformative, and it's not a result of what we've done. You, when you were in your mother's womb, it's not like, get me out of here, and you pull yourself out, right? It's the womb, it's contractions and pushing you out, and mom pushing you out and stuff, and possibly people from the outside, if you had a huge head or something, suctioning you from the head out or something, or forceps or whatever. It, it's not you, though. You're just kind of there. You're just like, blob, grumpy old man that's going to come out. And, and it's other people doing this work. right? It's, it's somebody else doing this work. But as a result of being born again, regenerated according to His great mercy through His resurrection, it's His great mercy. It's His resurrection. Being born again is all outside of you. How many people do you know come to church without any regeneration? How many people come to regeneration without any regeneration? And doing Christian things on the outside and going to Bible studies and reading the Bible and praying and doing all the Christian stuff, but on the inside, there's no change. There's nothing happening on the inside. That's not a living hope, that's just religion. That's just religion. And perhaps it's because your hope is according to you rather than in accordance to His great mercy and His resurrection to know what He did, not what you have to do. And what Jesus did in the past is active in the present and will be active in the future. It's not just these stories of old. Oh, great, He raised from the dead. Oh, He did these things. Oh, those are great stories. Great, great, great. God is active now. That resurrection is true now. And Christianity isn't just like a bunch of cool stories about Jesus in the past. Jesus is alive and well. I mean, he's in the present. He gives us a living hope. It's current. Hope for today. Hope for the future. And he's promised us. Let's just read verses 4 and 5. I'm not going to go through them in depth. Let's just read them, though. Because he's promised us this. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now this inheritance is not given to us outside of Jesus. You don't get it outside of Jesus. The living hope is only provided through Jesus, as no one else has resurrected from the dead to make an atonement for your sins. People have been resurrected from the dead, right? The, the widow's son at Nain, uh, countless others, Elijah, when they touch Elijah's bone, that guy, raised from the, that guy came back from the dead. Um, so, so people have raised from the dead, but Jesus is the only one that claims to be God and rose from the dead, right? And it, it, it's only through Jesus, it, it, who by his 
grace, by His mercy, He's given us this opportunity to exercise faith in Him. Now, the faith we have in Him, that's not a work. We're not justified through the worthiness of our beliefs. Like, oh, I believe really hard, therefore I am, or whatever. It's not... It's in the worthiness of in the one whom we believe in. So we're put right with God because our believing is in the strength of who Jesus is. And what He has done, it's not because of what we believe. Does that make sense? Because so much of the confusion surrounding faith is in regards to works. Right? Where some people feel that we have to keep re- reaching to God. We have to keep doing things to, to please God, for God, to worship God, to do all this stuff. That's religion. That's, that's, that's religion. That's all of the world's religions except Christianity. Where, where people reach out to God to get right with God. That, that's what religion does. Right? Burn incense. Do these prayers. Go through these the penance of stuff. Or climb up this mountain. Or hang these flags. Or do whatever. Like Do all this stuff. That's religion. And there, there are these acts to be done to get closer to God. But the story of Christianity is not about us reaching out to God to get closer to Him. That's not Christianity. The story of Christianity is God reaching down to us. God, Jesus Christ, coming down to us, to reach us, who, who actively participated in our humanity to become like us in flesh. Right? Jesus incarnate. And, and Jesus Christ, who died a physical death in our place. And, and who resurrected for our justification. This is our God who, who rules the universe and, and he, he brings these promises uh, and, and He describes to us what His plan is in His Word. And He came down to us. It's not about us pleasing Him and reaching out to Him and doing all these things for Him. He did it all. He came down. He lived that life. Now what faith is, Faith is the acceptance of God's gift of mercy, of His gift of kindness, of of forgiveness, of hope, of acceptance, of a future. It's an acceptance of those things, a gift that, that God's gracious hand has extended to us while we were yet sinners. And we're not right with God because we're good. That doesn't make you right with God you're so-called good and you don't do bad things. That doesn't make you right with God. We are good when we are right with God. That's when we're good. We're not right with God because we are good. We are good when we are right with God. And if you're not right with God right now, don't assume that you're going to get another chance to get right with Him. One of those reasons is because you don't know how long you're going to live. You could die tomorrow, right? And, and so you have an opportunity tonight, so why not? You don't know how long you're going to live. Another reason is that the gospel message doesn't tend to soften people's hearts. The gospel message actually, I think, does the opposite. I think it starts hardening people's hearts. That the more you listen to it, 
the more hardened you get towards it. Right? I, I, that's, that's, at least that's what I found. The same people that I've shared the gospel message with, whether they be, be my, my family members or close friends, the more that I share with them, the more it seems to be like water on a duck's back. It's just the easier that it kind of just, yeah, whatever. Right? And, and there are people that I know that, that they've heard the gospel a lot. And there are some people that they just come to a service because it's Easter, because it's Christmas. I know that for a fact in our morning service that that's the case. You know, I don't see people there unless it's something like that. It's Christmas or it's Easter, then they show up. I'm like, oh, nice to see you twice a year. See you at Christmas, you know. But the gospel just doesn't really affect them. They just kind of hear culturally. Here because it's kind of the Easter thing to do or the Christmas thing to do. To receive this truth, to believe in this hope, to live in this faith, more often than not, it's all rejected the more people are around it and they don't accept it. And I think it gets harder to accept God's offer of forgiveness rather than easier if you've heard this over and over and over again. It's just kind of like, whatever. If you find yourself in that place, today is your day of salvation. Don't, don't let that harden you even more. Just grab onto it today. Today is the day to go to Jesus. And He loves you and He's been waiting for you to go to Him. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Confess to Him your sins. And tell Him you want to live in truth and in hope. A living hope. Ask to be born again. To be regenerated. It's not something that you have to do. Right? He, he did it. He died for you. He rose from the dead. He did that stuff. Believe it in faith. Amen.